Hello. Hello. And welcome to Are You Karate Kidding Me? Your resource for reviews, recaps, and items of interest from all around the Miyagi-verse. I'm your host, Colin Kennedy. I am Jenny Carlson. And we come to you, <laughs> joyous, our hat in hand, at the beginning of a new season. We just recapped episode one, and now we're moving on to episode two of season three of Cobra Kai. And you can join in on the conversation with us at Karate Kid Pod. I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what's happened in the last couple of weeks, but suddenly Twitter's a great place to be again. It I, is. It's yeah. strange, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost enjoyable. My feed is almost. Full of, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's be clear. Cobra Kai Twitter is delightful. Right. Cobra now. Kai Twitter is delightful. The Facebook communities for ourselves and our fellow Cobra Kai. Uh, related podcast is a great place to be. Yeah. Fan communities are a great place to be. You carve yourself out of a spot in a fan community, you'll have a good time. Especially times like this because the news is coming hard and fast with all kinds of press about the show. You know, season three on Netflix has just been a huge deal. And this week we are excited to order our Cobra Kai soundtracks from La La Land Records. That's right. Yeah, like the the show... <laughs> There's it's, all this stuff happening. The show is, now that they're on Netflix, it's the promotion that keeps on giving. Yes. Like it's It seems like every week there's a new Honest trailer or a new interview with Ralph and Billy or an interview with one of the junior cast members or just, uh, like you said, there's soundtracks, there's merch. There's Cobra Kai the Serial. There's Cobra Kai the Flamethrower. Our Viper Pit runneth over it, it, with Cobra Kai <laughs> yes. stuff. Actually, it's more like it hisseth over. Yes, well, sp- yeah, spoilers for something that happens later in the season, hey, I guess. Hey, no, shh. <laughs> moving on. Uh, moving on. So, are you ready to jump right in? Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm not scared. That's right. So, let's <laughs> jump right in with Cobra Kai Season 3, Episode 2, Nature, Nature versus Nurture. Nurture. One, two, three, cuatro. Netflix logo. And then a Sony Pictures Television logo, too, just so that we don't forget. Open on the San Fernando Valley, circa 1965. And we know it's 1965 because the banana boat shows up for some reason. We see a row of retro cars, and one of the cars that pulls up is the banana boat, driven by some Joe College-looking types. Um... I just want to shout out to the soundtrack here because Wooly Bully is playing. That's right. We To the strains of Wooly Bully, are, are these new characters exit the car. Uh, wait, but let me say one more thing about Wooly Bully. So this is the second greatest use of Wooly Bully to establish a time period ever. The first, the honor goes to Splash. The Do you think flashback. this might be a uh, Easter egg to Splash? I would hope so. I would hope so, too. I think we're all on the same page, and this guy is clearly the same kind of person as John Candy's character was in that scene in Splash, which is the guy who drops money on the ground to look up women's skirts. Something of that nature, certainly. This uh, Joe College dude pulls up with his pal and his gal pal getting out of the car, and at this point when watching this, I went, oh my god, that's Jesse Cove. That is indeed Jesse Cove hopping out of the car. The son of Martin Cove, a.k.a. Yeah. John Kreese. So these new interesting characters enter this uh Greasy Spoon Diner. Jesse Cove, who at this point I assumed was Crease, elbows a mild-mannered looking kid who's sweeping the floor. He sets out stuff on the table for them and and the girlfriend 
who, uh, who is we very, will know as Betsy, who we will know as Betsy, looks at the kid and says, thank you. And David, her bully boyfriend, gives her guff for being nice to him and says that he's a freak and they're gossiping. He's the one whose mom killed herself. Explains why he's such a freak. Stop that. So some, yeah. some mental illness shaming. But these woolly bullies are interrupted when a Vietnam recruiter by the name of Marshall shows up at their table. And says it's amazing what you can become with a little bit of direction. They give him some lip service to giving it serious thought. There's no system for which that they'll be involuntarily pressed into going to Vietnam without... You're saying they're not being drafted yet. That's right. There's no draft in effect yet. Oh, yeah. When did the draft go into effect? This is strange. Wouldn't they all have a number by this point? 1965? I don't think so. Draft wasn't until 70s, was it? No, the draft came much earlier than that. Is this a case for Wikipedia? You better look that up. All right. Yep. So the draft is four years away at this point. Yeah, people are signing up to go, except not this kid. Okay, first I have to say that when the recruiter is talking to these people, Jesse Cove sounds just like Martin Cove. In fact, I was like, is that ADR with Martin Cove? Can it, Betsy? This really seems like he's going to be creased, right? He's kind of a dick. He throws away the recruiter brochure that he crumples up, and the kid sweeping the floor picks it up to look at it. Hmm, he says. And Join the army. Seen the Navy, it says. And at that point, the boss yells at him, Creased! Tables are not going to bust himself. Get back to work. And we see that the mild-mannered kid was actually John Creese. These other people are just bullies. It was a big switcheroo the entire time. But we know that this is... A real flashback because we get like the period cars, the period music. They do some interesting color grading to make it a little washed out, a little like old photograph, I guess you would say. We know again that these guys are really irredeemable because they trip Crease inexplicably as he's walking across the floor holding a bus tray. <laughs> In a way, it's a throwback or a callback to when Daniel, uh, tripped and had spaghetti spill all over him and the karate kid so crease is an underdog is what the yeah. show is telling us and and the bully's girlfriend is very upset about this and as this scene is unfolding we hear a voiceover weakness is unacceptable with john crease today saying you lost soldiers and you lost the battle but you will not lose again we then fade to present day cobra kai and Kreese is demagoguing to the kids. Uh, <laughs> he's saying that what they did to Diaz, they did to everyone. Everyone's answering back with their usual yes senseis. Hawk is looking particularly psyched. Yes sensei! We're kind of getting a Hawk's eye view because most of the people we know, except Bert and a couple other folks who don't have many things to do, I guess Mitch, uh, they're around. But Hawk is the character we've seen the most of. And he's now the only one left, right? Because Tori is not there right now. Miguel is in the hospital. And appropriately, now we cut to the hospital where we see a conscious Miguel in a kind of attraction situation. Miguel, having freshly woken up at the very end of the last episode, is now awake in bed. Still not looking too hot. Carmen is, is telling him he got a comic book from his pale friend which would be Dimitri. And there's also a fruit basket there from the LaRussos, right? So now we know that Carmen is in touch with Daniel and Amanda and they have given her a fruit basket for Miguel. Um, Miguel is trying to speak and he's trying to communicate. He Miguel only wants to know one thing and that's, where's Johnny? Yeah, and Carmen looks a little distressed by this question because she wants Johnny nowhere near Miguel. 
Luckily, Johnny is not near Miguel. Johnny is asleep in the passenger seat of Daniel's car. Hey. And Daniel got him a juice, one of those green drinks. Advil's in the glove department. Johnny appropriately says... Looks like sewage. Johnny is not quite with it. He's not in the mood for this, but Daniel is super motivated. You find Robbie, you might want to be awake. Daniel's on top of things. That's right. Johnny tries to turn on the radio. He wants to take it on the run, but Daniel's like, no, Johnny, this is serious. Knock it off. On a mission. Johnny is skeptical about Daniel's plans, but Daniel says that a mutual friend will point them in the right direction. Yeah, Daniel's being a little bit cryptic in this scene, but we get to... That's fine. It helps build suspense for our show. <laughs> that as, it does. As that's occurring, they pull up to a very nice-looking mission-style building with people doing yoga in the front yard and someone painting in a courtyard. And... Johnny's sort of looking around confused and asks if this is what rehab is like. And Daniel says, this is one of the best facilities in the country. Yes, we now learn that we are at the Malibu Canyon Recovery Center, where there's people out doing yoga, everybody dressed in, uh, you know, flowy clothing and daishikis. And everyone looks like they're getting very nice photo facials, excellent skin, beautiful complexions. They're walking past. Johnny's trying to make eyes at some women. But Daniel's like, we have to focus on business. And they come in where, of course, the woman who greets them thinks that Johnny is there to check himself in. No, I'm not checking in. Johnny replies, no quitter. I understand. Johnny's like an upside down motivational poster. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> As if quitting booze was like failure. Of course, Daniel gets a chuckle out of the honest confusion, which Johnny responds. I laugh it up, Larusa. <laughs> Very Han Solo take. They walk outside, and there they are greeted by Shannon, who looks very fondly at Daniel and gives him a hug. She says to thank Amanda for this lavender essential oil that's really been helping with her insomnia. And Johnny looks on, like, what is going on as Daniel asks Shannon if she's still going to the Kudos and Concerns meeting. Looks like we've got Diora Baird back as Shannon. And yeah, it turns out Shannon is on a real good terms with the LaRussos at this point. She says she wasn't expecting to see Johnny and Daniel together. And Johnny says, whatever it takes to find our son in a scene that's blocked just to show Robbie's two dads standing together. It's a real My Two Dads situation. To which Shannon seems to be pretty comfortable uh, with that. What she's not comfortable with is Johnny kind of needling her about her life choices. Well, he frames her being on rehab as a vacation, and you know, that she's not going to look for Robbie because she's on vacation. You know, Johnny, rehab has done wonders for me. It works for a lot of people, actually. Shannon's just going by the advice and the best direction of the people around her, including her her life coach. coach. Indeed. Maybe her life coach is Moon, or Moon is an intern at this place. Get rid of all this negative energy. Clear your chakras. And have some fun. Whereas Johnny's life coach appears to be uh, Truckasaurus. Truckasaurus! 20 tons and four stories of car-crunching, fire-breathing, prehistoric insanity! Truckasaurus was badass and you loved every minute of it. And now they get into a discussion that is a veiled reference to orgasms, discussing whether Johnny knows if Shannon's faking. Daniel is not here for this. Guys, we just really need to know if you have any idea where Robbie might have gone. With that car that he got from the trade-in lot at LaRusso Auto. And Shannon reminds us that no matter where Robbie went, those dimwits weren't far behind. Uh, one looks like Chris Brown, the other one looks vaguely Latin. Dimwits, you say. Troublemakers, you say. From season one, you say. <laughs> Why, there's only two people that that could be, but we'll find out who exactly that is in a moment. Right now, we're going to cut back to Cobra Kai. 
where the kids are sparring, waiting on Crease. Oh, we've got Hawk, obviously. We've got Bert. We've got some of the assorted other uh, ne'er do wells who stuck around after the big fracas. Now, now, there, there's no such thing as a as a bad student. There's just a bad teacher, Colin. Fair. It remains to be seen who the true. But my point is, these kids are the diehards, the ones that stuck around at the big fracas at the end of season two. That's true. Crease emerges from his office with an object lesson in the form of a hamster. He says that he's got a friend he'd like them to meet, and Bert wants to know what the little guy's name is, and Crease lets him name him. Bert, what do you think? Um, Clarence? Clarence. Good. That's right. Bert asks to feed Clarence, and Crease says, But you can feed him pulling the black sheet off an aquarium. Uh, unfortunately, there's no bonsai tree in this aquarium. There's a snake, which I guess is the Cobra Kai equivalent of a bonsai tree. Yes, it is. It is It is for sure the case that the Cobra is decreased with the bonsai tree is Mr. Miyagi. Bonsai tree. And as Kree shows us the snake, it becomes clear that he wants Bert to feed that hamster to the Cobra. You know, it's almost lunchtime. Kree says... Uh, <laughs> And then proceeds to eat the hamster whole. And that's the end of the episode. Man, that was a weird Cobra Kai this week. Well, anyway, Kreese is trying to convince Bert to throw the hamster in. And Bert walks up. This is really good work here by Owen Morgan. You can hear Clarence making little desperate squeaks. Just a reminder, everyone, no hamsters were harmed in the making of this show, probably. Probably. No, that's clearly an audio animatronic snake, but it's a very good one. They have no expenses. Hawk is looking on intently as Bert hesitates to feed Clarence to the cobra. Increases as he understands because... It's okay to object. Who else objects? And of course, that's a reference to conscientious objection in Vietnam, right? Increases. says... Get out! What? I said out. They're all kicked off the team, and now he becomes a little more vehement, telling them to get out. That's right. Yeah, Kreese has a very interesting idea of a hamster dance. Uh, Uses this as an opportunity to kick half of the Cobras off of the Cobra Kai team. Hawk looks on in surprise and in concern as Kreese drops that little hamster into the snake aquarium. And then we do a smash cut to Kreese chopping the ends off a new cigar in his office. Uh, The first of uh, a couple of interesting uh, cuts in this episode. Hawk walks in, and this is such an interesting, like, distorted funhouse mirror version of... Miguel talking to Johnny in the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hawk wants to know if this is a good time to be making cuts to the team. A fair question. Hawk understands the need for new recruits and Kreese replies, But we will in due time. But first we're going to need to strengthen our core. Yeah, they're doing addition by subtraction. They need to pair off the weakness, as Kreese explains, and then bring on a new champion. Because with Miguel out, they need someone who can win next time. It's very interesting and speaks a lot to Kreese's coaching style that he's not implying that it's Hawk who would be the obvious like new lead contender here. Yeah, he's enlisting Hawk as a partner in this, but it's clear that Hawk isn't the guy that he's settling on. Hawk's position is 
a little less stable. Yeah, no one's stable in Cobra Kai. Speaking of people who are fundamentally unstable, we then cut to Tori. Who's at cutting her, a sandwich. Who's also cutting a sandwich. Yeah. Many cuts. Yes, exactly. We cut to Tori, who's cutting a sandwich at her uh, apartment. Uh, we see that the sandwich is actually for her mom seen off frame in the other room. Yeah, her little brother delivers the sandwich, and so we see that she's got a mom who's who looks to be sick in bed. She's got a little brother. She's very concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. This is the first time we see Tori in her home environment. Like, every other time we've seen her up until now, it's been either in Cobra Kai or threatening someone. But like every other karate underdog, she also lives in a pretty run-down apartment complex. This one has some plants that Mr. Miyagi would really love in the courtyard. And she's coming out to take out the trash where she runs into her smarmy looking super. Oh God, this guy. This is really a standard character test in the Miyagi verse, right? How people deal with leaky faucets through the super renter relationship because Tori tells him he hasn't fixed the leak yet. And he's like, I'm not going to. My job to cash rent checks. If I can't do my job, then you can't live here. And he says that that caretaker thing is the only reason you're not in juvie. Tori is in a lot more trouble than, say, Sam is. It's just that she's the only person holding her family together. And just to drive home that this super is a misogynist scumbag, he refers to the giant brawl. I know if I had some mud and an inflatable pool, I could have sold tickets. That boy you two fought over would have sat front and center. Don't talk about him. It's disgusting. Uh, And basically makes... uh, advances toward her that imply that he will take other payments uh, instead of rent. It's gross. It's super gross. Of course she grabs him in a wrist lock. I bet you wouldn't sound like a man if I broke your wrist. And he relents for now. One thing I will say is that when he is um, being a jerk to her, her reaction about the catfight comment reveals that she still cares about Miguel. So even though you know, Tori is willing to wail on this guy. She's not mad at Miguel for anything that might've happened with Miguel and Sam. Unfortunately, Tori is able to defend herself, you know, and that kind of diffuses his threat. Like, I I feel like there's a very fine line uh, for a part like this to where it's like, you know, he practically plays it as a cartoon. And that coupled with the fact that Tori can clearly defend herself against this guy definitely defangs him a little bit but he's just threatening enough to make you worry and that's enough exactly and i have to hand it to peyton list in this scene because you know even though she's still got tory energy right like she's a human oh, she's being got huge tory energy yeah one other thing i will say about the scumbag is of course he threatens her with going to her probation officer for her violence that's pretty much the shorthand that we're given for tory's life in this scene it's like mm. not great bob Tori kicks the drain pipe in retaliation and heads back to the apartment. Meanwhile, in, at the state pen... At the state pen, we finally uh, get to see Daniel and Johnny in the yard waiting to talk to uh, these inmates. And guess what, guys? As we no doubt guessed two scenes ago, Trey and Cruz are back. We've got Terrell Hill as Trey, Jeff Kaplan as Cruz, and uh, they're here so that Daniel and Johnny can play a little bit of bad cop, bad cop. A George Went looking cop leaves them at the table with Daniel and Johnny, uh, and Trey refers to him as bitch ass Kevin James punk. Pretty great insult for those of us who, even if you haven't seen Paul Blart Mall Cop. Looks like we got ourselves a sticky situation. Always bet on Blart. 
you know, Johnny has told Daniel to basically follow his lead because this is his world. And Johnny begins talking smack to them, calling them morons. Uh, Daniel tries to talk to them. Now, does it look like we're scared of you? Johnny is not having it. They're not listening to Johnny, even though he's threatening them, because, well, first of all, he looks like a scarecrow. Look at your face. Looks like you already got your ass beat. Uh, second of all, Robbie was never afraid of Johnny, so why should they be, right? They don't care. But when Daniel talked... Enough! Cut the crap and tell us everything you know about Robbie. They listen, and they all respect him, and they refer to him as Mr. LaRusso, which Johnny doesn't understand why that is, because Johnny doesn't know, like we do, that Daniel beat the crap out of those guys defending Robbie and helped get them thrown in jail. It's very interesting uh, in this scene. We're so lucky to have Daniel and Johnny together in this episode as much as we do because it really highlights their differences in approach. And whereas Daniel can come into a scene and demand some measure of respect and he has some measure of gravitas, even without knowing that Daniel kicked these guys' butts a season and a half ago or so. It still highlights the world of difference there are between these two characters where where Daniel immediately draws respect out of people Johnny has to you know resort to name calling and slapping people around Johnny what the hell he just hit me you don't see that yeah and also like Johnny's playing the most parodic version of himself at this point oh. better start talking I can do this all day and even though Daniel's already on the way to getting the information out of these guys Johnny's pissed off that they respect Daniel so he slaps Cruz around the guards turn a blind eye which allow Daniel and Johnny to ultimately get what they want. Trey spills the beans, saying that... Look, we all used to scam people at Tech Town in Panorama City. And maybe they should go there for some more clues. And it's funny, because when they say that, Johnny looks down like, oh, I didn't know that about my son, right? And then looks over it. But that doesn't mean that Johnny doesn't have it in him to tell Cruz that he... You might want to get your friend here at Tampa. ...on for his bloody nose. And Daniel rolling with Johnny's mean says you better be telling the truth or I'll send him back alone next time it's pretty gratifying to see them leaning into their strange dynamic as vigilantes this is the cop show that we wanted to see cut back to West Valley General Uh, Miguel is getting stuffed full of his yaya's food while a doctor checks it yeah the doctor's checking his reflexes and everyone notices that Miguel doesn't feel anything when the doctor tests his ankle and toes uh, the scene is very well acted. Uh, the doctor's very chill about it, says it's okay. And Carmen's like, the scans are okay, right? And the doctor is fronting, of course. Miguel, like any artist, wants to know if he'll be able to practice his art karate again. Uh, but the doctor summons Carmen out and she turns on the TV because the doctors played last night. But Miguel watches them rather than the television and sees through one of those handy soap opera style hospital room windows that the doctor is telling Carmen some bad news. Which is uh, implying that Miguel is not going to be able to walk again. Certainly not anytime soon. Uh, And certainly karate's off the table altogether. Yeah. Again, they show us that entire scene from Miguel's POV, which is rough. We don't get to hear what the doctor says. We don't get to hear what Carmen says. But the reaction is enough. So now we cut to the Daniel Mobile, where Johnny is again in the passenger seat popping some corn nuts and then he's dropping some of them which Daniel doesn't want to dig out of the upholstery for five years which just leads Johnny to pop them even more egregiously in Daniel's face Johnny doesn't give a fuck Daniel wants to talk about what they're going to do when they find Robbie and Johnny's just like he's my son I'll deal with it uh Daniel is not interested in this 
car's ringing. Because Amanda is calling. Oh, hey, honey. Hey. That's and- right. Amanda's calling to do what she does best, which is inject some reality into this situation. Exactly. And uh, Daniel says that he's in the car with Johnny Lawrence, and Amanda greets Johnny, and because Johnny doesn't understand our car phone's work, he leans very close to Daniel's talk into the steering wheel. Hi, Johnny. Oh, hey, Amanda. All right, you know what? Lean back. Because he's Dr. 80s. Yes, Dr. 80s leans in to talk to Amanda. Daniel tells Johnny that that's not necessary. Um, Johnny reveals over the car phone that... We got a new lead on Robbie. A lead? Amanda's like... What are you, Tango and Cash? <laughs> Tango and Cash were narcotics detectives. This is a beloved scene from the trailer for this season. Anyway, Daniel, again, is like, they're on the trail now. And Johnny says that... Yeah, scumbags at the prison gave it up easy. Couple of pussies. Which is what leads Amanda to say... Did you say prison? We were just talking to a couple of guys. Yeah, they wouldn't talk, so we had to smack them around a little bit. You did what? You do realize neither one of you are cops, right? All the evidence uh, is to the contrary in this scene, as we've gotten nothing in this episode but Daniel and Johnny running around doing cop stuff, and also about to do more cop stuff in a moment without It's either karate cops or no cops, although, you know, Johnny sounds kind of like a TV cop because he's saying, Yeah, but we got the information we needed. The guy coughed it up like a chicken bone. That's right, karate cops. Last year, you shared their glory, felt their pain. But nothing will prepare you for the new season on ABC Tuesday. Your discretion advised. So Amanda says she's against it, and we learn a little bit more about Daniel's mentality here, right? He's saying that... We just need to find him before the police do, okay? I don't want this kid's life to get destroyed if I can help it. I know, Daniel. Just be careful. It's really interesting. Like, Daniel and Amanda are doing so much of the, the adult discussion, and Johnny is just, like, completely checked out. But it gives us a moment for Daniel to hang up the phone and say, you know, did you have to tell her about the prison? And Johnny's like, I'm not lying to your wife for you, which is hilarious. Johnny pops another corn nut, drops it, and starts looking for it again. Is he looking for that corn nut because he feels sorry for Daniel and the upholstery? Or is he looking for that corn nut because he wants that corn nut? Johnny's a hungry boy in this episode. He's like Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. He's always eating. Speaking of other people who are having a hard time, we cut back to Tori's place. Cut to Tori counting money in her apartment uh, when she hears a knock on the door. And she sends her little brother out of the room to answer the door because she's expecting her scummy landlord. Yeah, she's expecting a sexual predator at (laughs) the door, uh, but instead... She's expecting Dateline. And what's going on here seems pretty pervy, doesn't it? (laughs) but instead she finds another kind of predator she finds crease of course tori wants to know how did you get this number how did you find me uh crease you know talks a big game about how he's special forces and can find her anytime any anywhere that he needed to but actually she had her address on her cobra kai paperwork so it wasn't really a big deal that line is really helpful though right it confirms that the crease that we saw in the flashbacks is the crease that stands before us today special forces training 18 months of covert ops crease is here to bring tori back to cobra kai and this is an interesting side of crease right this is a negotiating crease seemingly curious inquisitive crease uh, he wants to know why she's not coming back in she says that she's got to take care of her mom crease can tell that her mom is sick uh, she says, life is kind of kicking my ass right now. Crease wants her to know that you can always kick back. But she replies, that's what got me into this. This is an interesting side of Crease that we're getting to see now because this Crease, for whatever his motivation is, this is at least him trying to be at his most relatable. When Tori's talking about her sick mother, Crease comes right back with like, your mother, she's sick. 
Mine was too, once. Like, I can relate to you. I know what you're going through. Yeah. and He lived in a place even less charming than this. Probably didn't have as many potted plants. And that line allows Tori to say, this place ain't charming with a knowing look cast towards her her super guy, right? So Kreese yeah. realizes there's something going on there. Tori wants to know. So did she get better? No. It was a different kind of sickness. Yeah. Yeah. So they exchange a significant look. And Tori explains that if she could go back, she would. Also, it should be clear here. She said that what happened to Miguel was her fault. So she's not just stressed out. She's also blaming herself. Look, life may be kicking Tori's ass. But if there was one thing we know about Tori, she loves to fight. And she would gladly come back to Cobra Kai. Kreese kind of changes tactics a little bit, having just tried to kind of empathize with her. He kind of shifts to flattery. uh, He says he'll pay for her classes. I don't have money for rent, let alone karate. What if you do is run me? Well, he gets to that, but he says that those other students, they weren't born fighters like you. Tori reiterates that she needs the money. She has to work. She needs the money or else dot, dot, dot. And now Kreese is putting two and two together that there's something going on with this landlord and Tori. And the landlord, dimwit that he is, is trying to fix the drain pipe. He probably doesn't realize that Tori is the one who squished it. Speaking of Kreese, we now flash back to that same diner on that faithful day in 1965. To an, and we see we see young Crease walking out of the back of that diner next to a, an equally bent drain pipe. Nice little symmetry there. Crease mm. is taking out the trash just like Tori was in a previous episode when he sees the bully David yelling at Betsy, his nice girlfriend, slapping her around as his toady looks on. And the catalyst appears to be male jealousy, David spouting some nonsense about making eyes at somebody else in the diner, presumably Crease, uh, but it could be anybody. It's just an excuse for him to, you know, go off. We've always known that jealousy was toxic in boyfriend-girlfriend relationships in the Miyagi-verse, but this is the first time we've seen it come to physical blows. Mm-hmm. And this sort of creates an even bigger big bad that then we can put the frame of this other violence into. We see Crease trying to get the guy to, to back off, saying, didn't anyone ever teach you to keep your hands to yourself? And of course, this guy's making it about Crease having a crush on her. Once again, Jesse Cove, who does look a little bit like his dad, uh, is talking to young Crease here, attacking him and throwing him towards his toady and beginning to slam him in the gut. But of course, Crease is already a scrapper. Scrapper is the right word because what we're getting here is a scrappy back alley brawl as David squares off against Crease. Crease bringing some kind of barely restrained Travis Vick joker energy to this fight (laughs) where like he's getting punched he's getting kicked he flashes kind of a a weird grin every now and then or you see like a twinkle in his eye and also he says things like kind of reframes this version of crease as kind of a young wild one are you okay yeah i've had worse like he can get thrown into trash cans get back up and and drop the guys who are kicking him around he gets knocked down but he gets up again they're never gonna keep him down once he drops these dudes betsy asks him if he's okay you know sure he's had worse he looks kind of like he's feeling good about it and offers her a lift so we can see that there's a there's a backstory coming into focus here uh cut to the present day where johnny is putting the gas in daniel's car not much though because I don't know. They're going to be moving on pretty soon. Daniel walks up and has gas station food for Johnny. We've been trying to figure out what on earth this is that he bought Johnny. I mean, it seems like some kind of a churro situation here. Definitely. 
It could be a churro, a pickle. It could be a corn dog. Yeah, it's some definitely something snackable. I mean, like we said, Johnny is not. Stopped eating this entire car trip. He's a hungry boy. It's not going to be as good as Nestor's pizza, but... No, or a fried bologna sandwich. No, indeed. Daniel is really not sure about this gas station food. They've also been asking the cashier about Robbie. They're near Tech Town, they established, so they're going to go ask there. And Johnny says they can get the security cam footage, right? So these guys between them have watched enough crime shows. Daniel, however, can't believe that Johnny eats this crappy gas station food. Johnny says, what, you think you're too good for this? He's like, I am. Well, Daniel may be too good for gas station food, but mac and cheese, forget about it. Macaroni and cheese? I grew up on macaroni and cheese. Hey, listen, I never say no when it comes to macaroni and cheese. I used to eat this stuff by the ton. Hey, you know what I like. Exactly. So Daniel's phone goes off and he gets a text from Amanda. This is good news. Uh, Miguel's out of the coma. Amanda wanted him to tell Johnny, and Johnny looks gratified. Johnny and Daniel agree about this, right? This is some good news. Johnny looks mildly touched. And we go from one piece of good news to another, as lo and behold, just at that moment, the Dodge Caravan that they've been looking for pulls into the gas station. Yeah, and this is so adorable because they're both like, it's him, it's you! And they go running after the caravan, uh... Looking like chill, looking like large men acting like children because that's what they are. Johnny throws away his gas station food, hops in the driver's seat, and begins hey, to hey, pursue you. the fleeing caravan. That's right. Daniel practically slides across the hood and jumps into the passenger seat as, as he- they rip roar out of this gas station. And we get the one thing that the Karate Kid franchise has been missing this whole time, and I never realized it, which is a good old-fashioned car chase. They're, they're in hot pursuit now of this Dodge Caravan that is happening on a back road. You know, Daniel's trying to get Johnny to slow down, just follow him. Johnny's, you know, intent on tailgating as closely as possible, including running a red light. Extremely gratifying to watch Daniel yelling at Johnny to not run the red light. Daniel is is clearly the adult here again, and Johnny is is living for speeding down this small road in an Audi. This is uh, some just good old-fashioned cops and robbers car chase action as we're speeding through red lights getting narrowly missed by other cars in and out of the oncoming lane well johnny says he's a great driver and then immediately gets daniel's mirror side swiped off uh and at the end of this merry chase we find that there's some sort of garage chop shop situation and uh daniel obviously wants to call the cops and is yelling johnny i'm gonna call the cops after Johnny enters the chop shop. Well, what Daniel means there is... All right, we're out of our element here. But the chop shop guys interpret that to mean that Daniel's going to call the cops on them. Even already? Johnny is still so in his head. He's like, I'm not afraid of this place. You will be. You will be. But of course, at this point, Daniel's turning to go because he's over it and all the chop shop dudes have encircled them. Okay, guys, let, let's let's talk about this, all right? Exactly. It turns out that uh, there's some guys in this chop shop that are stuntmen, but they obviously look like they've done their time on Oz or Sons of Anarchy or one of those shows. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, there's some real rough looking customers. So if we were faked out in the first episode of the season where it looked like Johnny was going to interfere in criminal activity and Johnny was the criminal who broke the guy's windows these are the real criminals they clearly don't want the cops to be called and daniel's trying to explain like you keep the van i.e his own van Mm -hmm. we just want to know what happened to the kid who did it daniel is is an adorable daniel mode he's trying to talk his way out of it uh whereas johnny is just watching all this happen and 
Johnny has already decided that he knows how this is going to go. Or not. Johnny pushes Daniel out of the way after making eye contact with a couple of dudes and just starts taking them on. And of course, this means that Daniel also has to fight. So the guys are coming at them with random tools. Daniel gets in a really good jump kick. Daniel and Johnny are both dropping dudes. He's, you know, holding one in a chokehold while kicking another. Daniel's flipping guys over, leaning forward on his hands to kick from behind. It is intense. It is exactly the fight that we have always hoped for. And the merging of stunt people with the actors is incredible. Well, Ralph- this is the, yeah, I mean, together they're kicking ass. This is the first time we get to see yeah. these guys kick ass together. And uh, we are here for it. It's kind of, you know, a speed wagon fight, right? They're they're doing it. And it's just comical enough that you believe that these 50-something-year-old men maybe shouldn't be doing this, but they're really good at it. Both Daniel and Johnny, you know, are picking up tools, but Johnny's picking up his tool to throw it at somebody else. And Daniel's like, oh my God, this situation is even more out of control than I thought when the biggest guy picks him up and throws him into the tires like a rag doll. Everybody's getting thrown into stuff this episode. It's bananas. If you think back to season one where it's like, who was doing the fighting? Mostly the junior cast. And then maybe William Zabka got some a chance to do a fight scene or two. And then maybe Ralph Macchio got a chance to do a kick or something. And then like Ralph also got trained up for season two but now it's season three and it's like we've got both the boys together in this massive garage brawl and yep. it is fantastic yeah the final scene they're they're taking on the last guy and they both drop him at the same time uh we see daniel from behind johnny kicks him daniel takes him out from the other side and then as that guy goes down daniel sees that there's one guy in the corner who now makes to run away uh and johnny pins the guy down and is beginning to beat the crap out of him. Trying to slam his head against the pavement, saying, Where is he? What kid? Fuck! Johnny, what are you doing? Well, he gives him the old Dark Knight treatment. I never knew. I don't know. I swear to God. Swear to me! But, you know, Daniel's trying to pull Johnny off the guy and just saying that's enough because they're going to get the answer. The guy doesn't know anything else. You know, this is not where they're going to find it. And so then... Johnny wheels on Daniel and begins punching at him. Daniel's trying to block. This is ridiculous, Daniel says. And Johnny's like, You knew where Robbie was. Well, he told you everything he knew. And Daniel's just pissed because, of course, that guy was terrified. And now Daniel, you know, flips back into season one or season two. Daniel, I should have known better than a team up with a lunatic like you. All this rubs Daniel the wrong way. And he bails out of the fellowship at this point. Yeah, and of course now they're saying things that they regret, like, you know, Johnny's saying, You're the one that came to me, LaRusso. Daniel's saying, I can't believe you actually taught kids. And Johnny says, Oh yeah, you're some great teacher. Look what happened to Robbie. Uh, they both look like they know they're saying things they regret, but they won't stop. And Daniel says something true here. You know, he's willing to admit when he fails, and maybe he did. But then, you know, Daniel can't help himself, and he says, Well, maybe he just has a little too much of you in him. Of course, now this means that Johnny's walking away and getting in that Dodge Caravan because he's got somewhere to be. So once again, Johnny is driving a car owned or serviced by LaRusso Auto. Johnny continues to trade down, uh, unfortunately, but at least he's got a car out of the deal. Daniel knows that that this is screwy. He gets in the car and he's gotten a call. Hello? Now it's Amanda again. He tells her Johnny's gone off. 
But now there's a new lead, and this time it sounds like it's about Robbie. All right, I'm on my way. Meanwhile, back at Tori's apartment complex, the smarmy dude is uh, changing out the coins in the washing machine. Crease goes downstairs at the laundry room of Tori's complex to confront this predatory landlord. This is the closest Crease comes to being likable, and if it wasn't out of his own selfish motivations, he might actually have gotten towards that redemption arc that people want. But again, this is all in service of trying to get Tori back to Cobra Kai so that he can get all the vipers in one place. He asks if... What are you, a grandpa or something? Or something. Of course, the, the superstar's saying suggestive things about Tori, but this leads Kreese to grab him, turn him around, and Kreese starts to use his cigar cutter to start cutting the guy's finger. If Johnny's Dr. 80s, then Kreese is Grandpa Karate. And Grandpa Karate says that somebody's got to teach him to keep his hands to himself. So the guy relents and says he'll do what he wants, because, of course... His, the blade is getting very close to his fingers and Kreese explains that they're going to make a little arrangement. Now we get the most disgusting match shot transition since A Christmas Story had Randy open the toilet lid then cut to their mom stirring the food in a pot because they cut from Kreese using his cigar cutter on that guy's finger. We're going to make a little arrangement. To Miguel cutting like a hot dog sausage in the hospital. Also doubly gross because, you know, it's a hospital hot dog. I mean, yeah, he's got a a pretty gnarly looking uh, hospital plate there. And he looks up to see Dr. 80s is back. Johnny has returned to the hospital now that he knows Miguel is awake. Having washed out on his detective show with Daniel, he's come to join this doctor show with Miguel. Miguel wants to know what happened to Johnny's face because, again, Johnny looks like hell, and he explains... I got no fight with a paper towel dispenser. PolitiFact equals true on that one. Johnny's happy Miguel's looking better, but he wants to know when Miguel might get back up on his feet. You know, Johnny's trying to joke around with Miguel and says that, you know, he's glad he got rid of that brace because headgear's for nerds, and Miguel cuts the chase and says that... Doctor told my mom I might not walk again. Johnny can't make eye contact here, right? Like, he Mm -hmm. can't handle that, and he says that... Uh, I don't know how strong you are. Like, Johnny can't accept that this could be possible, but Miguel is in a place of total realness, right? He says... I did what you taught me. Showed mercy. To Robbie. Yeah, Miguel feels betrayed because following all of Johnny's advice appears to be what landed him in this ultimate situation. This is maybe one of the most beautiful scenes that these two actors have done together. Uh, You can see Billy Zabka saying, I don't know why this happened. Just both of them are, you know, tears in their eyes. It's just a beautiful scene. And, you know, this this answer is unacceptable. Miguel is so angry and he says, I trusted you. I did everything that you told me. Johnny wants to apologize, right? But Miguel is not in that place. Look at me! Yeah, Miguel is now a big mad, and it gives Sholo a chance to do some real capital A acting here, and uh, he steps up and delivers. Get out of here! Please! Practically pleading, because what's Miguel going to do? Get up and shove him out of the room? Absolutely not. He's in a very helpless place, and he's lashing out in that way. And Johnny respects that, right? Well, I mean, how can he not? Uh, Johnny kind of just... I get the impression that Johnny just doesn't know what to do other than leave, right? Yeah. It's just one of those situations. Um, Meanwhile, in another desperate situation... Uh, We see that Robbie has returned to Shannon. And Shannon is the one who called Amanda and Daniel. 
And so Robbie's sitting there eating and Shannon's telling him it's all going to be okay. Robbie looks bad, right? He's chopped off his hair. He looks like he hasn't washed it since he ran away. He's wearing an old looking sweatshirt. Daniel walks up behind him and Shannon goes over to talk to Daniel and says that, you know. He's not right, Daniel. He keeps talking like he's going to leave town or something. And Daniel has it all figured out. He's like, well, you got to trust me here, all right? We'll fix this. Daniel looks, again, very confident in his situation. And Daniel goes to Robbie. Hey. This is so sad because, you know, Robbie looks, again, awful. He looks kind of freaked out, but I think relieved to see Daniel. And, you know, says that he... Sorry, he's been stuck cleaning up my mess. So Robbie, like Tori, feels very much like this is all his fault. Now, this mystery appears to have come back full circle. Uh, we started this search at Malibu Canyon Recovery, and now we have found who we were looking for the entire time, Robbie. Um, Robbie is, apologizes for stealing the van for what that's worth. Well, he says he'll pay him back, and Daniel's just like, that's not your style anyway, that van. Um, you know, you can see their dynamic here. Um, and Daniel is really trying to be there for Robbie, saying, I know it must have been rough for you on your own. All Robbie cares about is if Sam is okay. You know, Daniel, yeah. again, says she's worried about you. Like, Robbie is in denial about his own situation, whereas Daniel's like... Worried about you? We all are. You're dead, too. You know, Daniel's really being the grown-up here, and he apologizes to Robbie. Uh... You know, Robbie again is saying that he caused this, and and Daniel is saying, "I know you blame yourself, but I let you down." So you know, Daniel wants to make it clear that that he's the one who disappointed Robbie here, and he's making some headway. You know, and Robbie says though that he can't change. Daniel says, "You know, you got you can learn from our your mistakes. But our mistakes aren't who we are." But the problem is, of course, that he I just has a second to tell Robbie that he'll help him with that when we hear a cop's radio. Robbie has a very interesting attitude here because he's coming at it from a place of extreme guilt, obviously, but his main argument seems to revolve around this idea that he's bad and he was born bad and he's going to stay bad. It's like, his nature. Oh, but you were right. It was a mistake trying to help me because I can't change. It's a snake that can't change his stripes. He didn't say that. I'm just, I'm just reading the subtext, saying the quiet part loud. And the, Yes, in the loud part quiet. That's right. And Daniel's counterpoint is that our mistakes don't make us who we are yeah so nature versus nurture right the theme of the episode you know daniel's explaining to robbie that he spoke to a lawyer daniel has called the cops before convincing robbie to turn himself in what if we turned ourselves into the police well then we'd be policemen and we could drop the charges and so once again daniel you know knows the best thing but doesn't account for the fact that Robbie's going to run and isn't prepared for the fact that Robbie's going to turn on him, right? So the cops are surrounding Robbie. Robbie's going to try to bull. Trust me, the sentence will be much lighter this way. No, 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 I can't. Uh, The cops are going to pin him down. Hey, 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 easy with him. Now Robbie doesn't believe anything that Daniel said. He just says, you just kept me talking so I wouldn't leave. No, I was trying to help you. I mean, is Robbie turning on Daniel or did Daniel even try to really get Robbie on his side before this kind of went down like presumably daniel had called the cops on the way over i will visit you every day i promise don't bother yeah he had i mean daniel's face is just like man what a cluster daniel meant well i have Mm -hmm. no doubt but he was unprepared for how that would be actually to turn robbie in meanwhile back at the cobra kai dojo we are only as strong as our weakest links when we remove these links, this 
is what's left. One unit with one purpose, and in walks Tori. In walks Tori Nichol. Crease started this episode with a big demagogue speech, and he's ending it with one when Tori arrives. Welcome back. Thanks. Informing Crease that whatever issues she had back at Casa del Tori, they have been sorted. So she comes in, takes off her shoes, and they're going to all work on forward strikes. As Crease continues, uh, Fall in, we've got work to do. Crease's speech continues, and as he tells them, He says, There is no good. There is no bad. Only weak and strong. And the subtext is that you just look out for yourself. And as this monologue is happening, revealing his ethos, we see young Crease getting on a bus to Vietnam. But no matter what, I'll wait for you. Promise you'll come back to me. Yeah, we're fading back one more time to 1965 as Crease boards the bus to Vietnam. He tells his sweet Betsy that he promises he'll come back to her. Well, Betsy Dollface. Crease says, always remember what your enemies think. Your enemies think that they're doing what's right. They think they're the hero and you're the villain. But now you know the truth. Because there's no good. There's no bad. Only weak or strong. This is an interesting ethos we're learning about here because, you know, we knew this about Kreese. Now we see that there's no need for morals in this world. There's just dominance. For Kreese, yeah, absolutely. He's all about survival. What's he going to do to survive to the next day? And all of that revolves around shedding the weak and being strong no matter what. Shedding, shed weakness, show your strengths. And he says, you if you do that. I promise you, you will be unstoppable. And that is Cobra Kai Season 3, Episode 2, Nature versus Nurture. So, Jenny, what did you think of this episode? Holy crap, this episode. This episode was kind of a hot mess in the sense that there's just so much information happening. But it is all part of a, the theme of Nature versus Nurture, right? So, like... I got it, like they're laying out with no subtlety whatsoever that this is the driving question of the show. Mm -hmm. uh, and that fight with Johnny and Daniel was like the badass fight that we didn't know we were looking for. Well, like I said uh, in the recap, it's like it's the detective show that we didn't know that we wanted. Yeah, I mean, it's the buddy cop show that we've been wanting since Speedwagon. Um, but like every aspect of Johnny and Daniel's team up was an absolute delight. Uh, just extremely fun until, of course, it wasn't, which is how it always is with these characters, right? They they come together. It's delightful. They make sweet music. And then like the Everly Brothers or Simon and Garfunkel, they must part again and go back to their respective corners. So that was great. Um, I thought that was neat. Uh, I have a couple of other issues that I'll talk about in a second, but what did you think of the episode? I agree. I think that there was... A lot to kind of unpack. There was a lot to kind of catch us up. I mean, we're still dealing a lot with the fallout of the season two finale. And so there were a number of characters that we needed to kind of continue catching up on. You know, Johnny kind of continues his rehabilitation in this episode in his own way. There was some lip service paid here to how rehab works for shannon versus what johnny's idea of rehab is and in a weird way this is kind of johnny's rehab is kind of drying out with daniel 
going on this adventure, doing a car chase, and then kind of blowing up. But it's not going to be an easy road for Johnny because it just takes him right back to Miguel and to the problems that he's kind of brought upon himself. I mean, I can see that. I can see also, like, getting back to the language of the hero's journey, right? Like, Johnny is trying to do it on his own. Like, he's refusing the call of collaboration. He's just a bull in a china cabinet right now and acting out rather than reckoning with his feelings. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see, like, how Johnny's inability to deal causes chaos for everyone around him, even when he's relatively in check, right? Mm -hmm. One other thing about Johnny that I wanted to say is that he's really not an adult. Like, everyone else is on the same page, right? Everyone else has a realistic grasp that both Miguel and Robbie are in trouble. And Johnny is sort of compartmentalizing Robbie. Like, he feels responsible, but, like, he hasn't yet reckoned with those feelings at all. Miguel is the one that he's still in touch with more in his head. Whereas all the grown-ups, like, Carmen is obviously in touch with Daniel and Amanda. Shannon is in touch with Daniel and Amanda. Daniel is pretty clearly paying for Shannon's rehab. He knows what a great rehab it is. Like, who else is doing that? Johnny is just, like, out to lunch. And... I don't know when Johnny is going to kind of get back on track because this episode doesn't really make a case for him seeing the folly of his ways or being introspective, at least not at this point in the narrative. Yeah. What do you think about Daniel? Like, I was talking to a friend of mine about this. It's like he, this is the season where Daniel goes from being the karate kid to like karate guy. Like he kicks ass. Uh, He's reluctant, but he's very, very in the scene and ready to fight and ready to defend. I'm pretty sure that we talked a little bit about it last episode, but just in case the point wasn't made there, I think that Daniel's rise in prominence and Miyagi-Do's rise in prominence in the narrative is definitely noticeable. Like The show started out very much from Johnny's perspective, you know, back in season one, and now it's more of a two-hander. And some would be like, how could you be giving so much time to Daniel and his thing, where I would say, well, I mean, that's just the way these kind of narratives evolve. Like, Ralph Macchio and William Zabka have great chemistry together, they work really well together, and that shows in scenes that they have together, so naturally the writers are going to start coming up with reasons to have them do more stuff together you know enemies frenemies or no if it works it's going in if it doesn't work they're going to start to de-emphasize it that's just the way you know these narratives come together yeah and if johnny is acting out about not wanting to have to work with others that's his challenge you know then daniel is acting out about not wanting to fight but then when he has to fight he kicks ass but you know that's Daniel's challenge is he's got to learn how to preemptively fight people who are coming at him. So that's been really interesting also to see how he it's another iteration of Daniel's same challenge where like he's trying to fix everything still. He's got it all figured out. Like he knows that he needs to find Robbie before the cops do. But he's also decided that he's going to be the one to turn Robbie in. He didn't consult with Johnny about that. He didn't consult with Shannon about that. He didn't give himself adequate time to warn Robbie before the cops showed up. No. And yeah, I think that's a very important point. Daniel, on the surface, may seem that he has more on the ball than Johnny, but he has a lot on his plate still. Speaking of somebody who has a lot on their plate, what about Miguel? Well, he has hospital food on his plate. Yes, among other things. So many things. Number one, Sholo is a fantastic actor. Mm -hmm. And he and Billy Zabka together are quite the team. He really sells this storyline that is a soap opera storyline with a Cobra Kai reality 
that is really gutting, predictable, but no less gutting because of the way he acts it. Of course, at this point, none of us, I think, thought he was really going to lose the use of his legs. But they were smart to show it from his point of view because he doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was really hard to see. Dire Straits also for Robbie. Robbie is one of the characters we did not catch up on in episode one. And so this episode is all about finding Robbie and reconnecting with him and finding out what his ultimate fate is going to be. Aside from, you know, a stray cutaway here and there, we don't really see Robbie kind of grapple with the fallout of what happened at the school. We just kind of take it as assumed just by seeing his state when they find him. We're still going to get a lot with Robbie this season, but we don't see those moments leading up to his ultimate recapture. And I think that's kind of telling in its own way. I think part of the deal with Robbie is that we see that he's just kind of in an abject state, state, right? So he has feelings about what he, what, what's happened. He's blaming himself for everything. He might be processing things, but he's not really able to do that on his own. He was vulnerable but the minute that Daniel turned him in, that vulnerability was just gone. And you could see evil Robbie's face come back, right? Season one, Robbie. Yeah. Which is really hard to see. And of course, there's Tori. Yeah. Speaking of someone without vulnerability, much like Crease, the show seems to be trying to make a case for Tori in this episode where we're finally getting to see her home life. We've heard her give lip service to you know, how hard it is out there for Tori in previous episodes, but this is our first time actually seeing it. You know, I have feelings about this Tori thing. Like, Does it work better seeing it than having the character just tell us about it? It works better seeing it for me to believe that she's a real person. Mm -hmm. But I'm frustrated that her challenges are exactly what she told us they were. I mean, aside from the belief that violence is going to help her, which we see Tori always kind of having coming up, right? We don't see Tori having a complex duality in her character. We know that she cares about Miguel. We know that she's worried about her family, but we don't really see much more to Tori except for caring about these other people. Like, who is Tori? I mean, karate badass for sure, but like, who is she as a person? I'm not sure I know that. Except that I can empathize with her situation because she's you know, taking care of her family and is worried about them and will choose them over karate right now. I don't entirely know who she is yet. And so I like that I'm learning more. And I think it's interesting that they're drawing the parallel between like her sick mom and Kreese's sick mom. Clearly there's going to be some nature and nurture stuff there, but I'm not really sure yet who Tori is. And I'm not sure if I've been given a clue yet. And speaking of what about Kreese's backstory, that's the real headline in this episode. It is. And, you know, I think we've kind of danced around it long enough, but spoiler alert, these Kreese flashbacks are going to continue. And this is kind of a defining feature of this season. So what do we think about it so far? Does it help? Does it hurt? What do we think? We know that in the original Karate Kid, Kreese was sort of a gloss for U.S. covert ops and uh, extra legal violence uh -huh. in Asia and elsewhere. And that Mr. Miyagi was like the peaceful face of the American global presence and the heroic one who was willing to serve even though his own family was being effectively eradicated because mm -hmm. of the conditions that his wife was living in. Whereas Kreese was just doing these things and seemed like a bully. 
So now we're seeing that Kreese is going off to war uh, to be a hero. We're seeing that Kreese was kind of not like a, a shrimpy underdog, but like a kind of confident scrapper who is mild-mannered but also won't take shit, right? So we're learning a little bit more about what he was like before he became this hardened strength guy. Do they make us sympathize with Kreese, the flashbacks, or do they humanize him? I think is the big challenge that the show, that you know, is the is the tightrope the show is walking, because Kreese is always going to be, I think the villain of this show. He's always going to be the antagonist and I don't think he's going to change his ways unless it's like the very end of Lord Denethor and Lord of the Rings when he's like, oh my God, I'm on fire. I didn't mean to betray my son, but I, you know, uh, Kreese is not going to atone until the very, very end if he does. So I think the show at this point has ju- has humanized him more than it has made us sympathize with his philosophy. I think it's interesting that women are the primary catalysts for all of these men over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. With Tori, it's her family. With Sam, I don't know. Sam just doesn't like bullshit. That's some complexity there. Well, neither does Amanda. The apple does not fall far from the tree. Indeed not. Nor does Anthony. It's just that Anthony's bullshit is someone else's problem. Yes, indeed. Ha! But in this case with Kreese, right? Like, he's got a mom who killed herself. So either she had, like, The show seems to apply some sort of chemical depression. Or that she has like Huntington's like Woody Guthrie. Or something. Right. It's implying that there's a history of mental illness in Kreese's family, which is an interesting kind of little parachute for Kreese. Like, oh, well, the rest of this violence could be mental illness. I'm not saying they're saying that. But it's interesting that like he has this sick mom that sort of sets up one tentpole of his identity. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, he has Betsy. Right, who he chivalrously defends. I mean, I think that's a a great point. And I would say that it is interesting that the show is defining these characters by their relationships with women. I would also say in a weird way, that's kind of being true to formula. If you go back to original Karate Kid, like it was all about Allie and, you know, Daniel's mom is essentially the catalyst for all of this for moving to California in the first place. She wanted that job in computers. And she, and she had it for a minute. Um, Speaking of another character I miss, Randy Heller, who is only mentioned in this season but doesn't appear. This season's so packed with stuff. And like I said, we catch up with nearly every other major and minor character. Yeah, Randy Heller is one of the few exceptions. These flashbacks of Kreese as a young guy, the fake out with Jesse Cove, which is clearly a little game that the show is playing with the fans you know saying yeah i thought that was an interesting yeah i think that's an interesting idea that the show does and i kind of do like it when narratives do that when it's like well we're gonna set up something that you know is obvious but we're gonna set it up in a novel way to kind of keep you guessing at least a little bit yeah yeah i like that it takes up a lot of real estate, though. Like you said, like it's going to be coming back over the season. And I think we can weigh in again on what these flashbacks do for the story and the expectations they set up for us for the future with regard to Crease. One other thing I'd like to say is that it's interesting that this show has two classes of people, rich people and working class people. Either you live in a the same kind of apartment complex in Reseda or you live in a fancy house you either get a nice house and a nice set on the Atlanta back lot 
or you get a redressed version of Johnny's apartment. Exactly. But David the bully, played by Jesse Cove, is driving the banana boat, right? And, and you know, people are like, oh my gosh, it's a banana boat. So maybe there's this, this insinuation that the banana boat belonged to the bully guy. And then Mr. Miyagi at some point got it off the bully, which leads me to wonder, like, is this like in Parasite where... They get the the scholar's rock at the beginning of the movie, and it's like the cursed object that sends them down the path where all their resentments come to the surface. Is this supposed to explain why Kreese is fated to dislike Miyagi-Do? Because he I refuse ha- to believe that David and Miyagi <laughs> had ever come into direct contact with each other. I think David I either ditched, ditched the banana boat or sold it to somebody else and Miyagi either picked it up at a junkyard and fixed it up or something of that nature. Entirely possible. And of course, as often is the case with Cobra Kai, I'm like, are they sending me a message or is this just really good for their budget? And I think my guess is like, it's a little bit of both. Like they know we're going to notice that car. Mm -hmm. So it's fun to show it to us. Yeah, I got to say when the banana boat showed up at the beginning of the episode and the Chiron said San Fernando Valley 1965, I was like, are we going to see young Miyagi? And I'm like, oh no. Oh. I know that's what the one thing I was going to say is that I wish that they would show us young Miyagi if they're going to spend all this time on Crease. And I know we're going to get these Okinawa scenes. And I know that Mr. Miyagi had a whole movie, but really like this is the Miyagi verse. I agree. I think that the Crease flashbacks could serve as something of a test balloon mm-hmm. for doing more flashbacks in the future. And obviously these were successful at what they set out to do. Uh, and so yeah, I would be totally here for any additional flashbacks they want to give us next season, maybe contrasting, you know, young Miyagi versus something Daniel has to learn. Like, show us the other side of that coin, absolutely. Yep, for sure. Oh, and this reminds me that not a Miyagi versus Easter egg, but my other favorite Easter egg, which you pointed out, is that Truckosaurus is a Simpsons reference. That's right, implying that... Cobra Kai and the Simpsons is a shared universe, which I would be here <laughs> for. I don't know how it would work. Well, yeah. So in some right, nature versus nurture, a fun ride, mm-hmm. very thematically uh, interwoven. Mm-hmm. A lot of questions set up, a lot of calls to action, sort of played with and refused. Exactly. And we'll see where things go from here. So my questions for the next episode are. Uh, what the hell is Hawk going to do now that he's kind of both an insider, but not the main student at Cobra Kai? Mm-hmm. Right? What's going to happen when we see Sam again? Where is jo- What place is Johnny going to put all the feelings about what happened to Miguel? And, the- and his unresolved issues with Robbie that he has completely not touched at all. And what about Daniel and Amanda... What's going to happen there? It's going to be interesting to see all that stuff as the episodes progress. And still plenty of runway left to explore that. Hopefully we won't see another hamster die. I somehow doubt it. Indeed. Uh, yeah, so... That was a stunt hamster, right, Colin? Like, they didn't really kill that little... little we never rodent. saw explicitly what happened to the hamster. That I mean, that wasn't even a real snake in the in the cage so i think we're good yep yep uh (laughs) and on that note was the snake real was the snake snake real real. or was the snake a puppet tell us at our twitter account at karate kid pod there must be 10 videos on youtube that already explain the answer to that question and i'm not sure regardless we could take this argument to social media you can follow (laughs) us on facebook 
You can listen to us on your podcatcher of choice. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Podbean. We're on Podbean. We're on Anchor. We're everywhere where you can find fine Cobra Kai content. So until next time, I've been Colin Kennedy. I have been Jenny Carlson. We will see you next time for Cobra Kai Season 3, Episode 3. Now you're going to pay. Oh, you'll pay. Don't think you won't pay. Until then, we'll see you around the Miyagi-verse. See you around the Miyagi-verse. This podcast has been produced and hosted by Colin Kennedy and Jenny Carlson. Our music is by Cheppo. You can find us at Karate Kid Pod on Twitter. And wherever you download podcasts.